is the God that never remembers is the God that never forgets. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your grace. I want to thank you for your anointing. I want to thank you for your peace. I want to thank you for the seven spirits before the throne that brood in this place. I want to thank you for the equipping of the Holy Spirit, for the teaching of the Holy Spirit. I want to thank you for the revelation of your sacred scriptures, the word. And I want to thank you that we can draw deeply from your well of revelational knowledge so that we can grow, we can understand, we can be transformed, we can change, and we can be everything that you've predestined us to be and everything that you've created us to be through the mighty, powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, friends, I'm really excited to share this with you today. I woke up one morning and God just said this to me. I'm the God that never remembers, yet I'm the God that never forgets. And as I listened to that, I felt that God is wanting us to get a revelation, a far deeper revelation of what that means, that the same God that never remembers is the God that never forgets. And so as I share this with you today, I'm sharing it from that place of praying that the eyes of your understanding will be opened, that you can walk into a new destiny and a new revelation of what God is doing in your life. In this time of these, these shaking times that we're living in, we've got to unshakably know the God that we serve. So, um, the Bible says that the God that never remembers is the God that never forgets. I found this little saying, it says, you will never be a mature Christian until you understand that God remembers his promises, but forgets your sins. So who's the God who never remembers? Well, if we truly repent and confess our sins, God, the word of God says that he forgives us, he washes us, he removes our sins and our transgressions from, from us, and he never remembers them again. But there's a condition, friends. The condition is true repentance. True repentance. If we truly repent and we confess our sins one to another. It says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9 to 10. Now I rejoice not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. Godly sorrow brings repentance and leads to salvation that leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Friends, godly sorrow is repentance, which results in a mind change, a lifestyle change, 180 degrees walking away from what we were. It results in a new creation in Christ, and it means having a repulsion for sin, being repulsed by that which God considers to be offensive to him. But remorse is worldly sorrow. It means, I'm sorry I was caught. I'm sorry you found out. I'm sorry that you know. But I'm not sorry that I'm doing it. And when we look at that passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 and 10, it says that true repentance, true repulsion for our sin leads to salvation. You know, so many people believe that salvation is the fact that one day in, the, in, in, a, in a moment of weakness, they said a prayer and they said, Jesus Will you become the Lord and Savior of my life? And they said that prayer, maybe in a corporate meeting, maybe on their own, maybe in a moment of feeling vulnerable, and they received Jesus into their life, and then they carried on life as normal. We have cheapened the gospel. We've cheapened it to be a prayer of remorse. 
instead of an encounter of repentance. And because we've cheapened the gospel to a prayer of remorse, we have these prayer lines where people come up and they do a feel-good prayer and they leave out and they go exactly the way that they came in. And because we have created a feel-good gospel and we've cheapened the gospel and we've cheapened the seed of life that gets deposited in people, we've now had to create churches that embrace a cheapened gospel. And because people's hearts were not changed, they never had an explosion of the revelation of the forgiveness of God within them. They never had an explosion that happens when you are repulsed by your lifestyle and you want nothing more to do with it. And you cry out to the Savior of your soul and you ask Him to transform your life as Savior and as Lord. And they never had that revelation. And because they never had that revelation, we have built cheap churches a cheap gospel, a sweetie gospel, where we've got to embrace the demons of the people that never had a repulsion of what they are living and embracing and believing is okay in God. Friends, we have done the kingdom of God and the glory of God and the, and the word of God a terrible disgrace. Do you know that when you listen to the men of old and the women of old, when they came to that place of repentance, they wept before God. They wailed before God. They fasted before God. They just absolutely were undone before God. And because they were undone before God, when they then asked God to forgive them, it was a level of forgiveness that went so much deeper than just their own sin. It went into transgressions and it went into iniquities. It went deep right into the very core of the foundation of the sin and the shame and the guilt and the, and the, the result of the curses that they were living under. And because of that depth of repentance and revelations, they walked out of that place transformed. They walked out of there not only justified, but the deposit of grace, the deposit of the Holy Spirit that was, that was planted within them, the seed that was planted within them, the grace, the divine influence upon the heart reflected through the life, transformed them instantly, friends. And you will know when a person has had a true repentant lifestyle of salvation. Because they'll never be the same again. You'll see they were a drug addict one day and they had this repentance of the sin and the shame and the iniquity. And they had the revelation of where they've been. And through that powerful repentance, they walk out of there a new creation. They were drug addicts yesterday, but today they are not. They've been transformed. They were alcoholics yesterday, but today they've transformed. They were prostitutes yesterday, but today they were transformed. They were living a life of debauchery, but today they are transformed. In the twinkling of an eye, in an instant, they can die to the old man, just as much as in an instant we can die to our flesh physically. We can die to our flesh spiritually. And in the twinkling of an eye, they have been united in Christ, with Christ, seated with Him in heavenly places as a new creation. Friends, that is salvation. Salvation is not what we see it to be today. Salvation isn't just this, this cheap cookie cutter, quick and easy gospel, this plastic gospel that says you said a prayer and you can carry on living the way you are. You're under grace, you're fine. And then we have churches that have been built to feed that flesh instead of churches that have been built with a separated people worshipping their God with all of their heart, 
all of their mind and all of their strength absolutely saturated with the spirit of God and absolutely transformed from who they were to who they are today. A person that has had true repentance of salvation will never turn their back on Jesus. A the Bible says, for much you've been given, therefore much you will receive. They will be so absolutely aware of the fact that without Jesus, they're nothing. They will never turn their back on God. They will never blame the church for God because they know God. People that find excuses to backslide, people that find excuses to be offended with the church and blame God, people that find it easy to walk away from God have never truly had a salvation moment. They said a prayer. They did a bit of icing sugar. On top of a remorseful heart, nothing changed. And we feed that by calling it grace. And we feed that by saying you can live like that and it's okay. You know the term God understands my humanity. No, God does not understand your humanity. God the man came and lived on earth and he experienced every single form of temptation. But not once did he bow to the flesh. Because he stayed being, being absolutely led by the Holy Spirit. Friends, do not fool yourself with a good excuse that says, I can sin and it's okay. God understands my humanity. You are deceived. You're listening to the devil and you have no understanding of what true salvation means. True salvation means a repulsion, a deep repulsion for that that offends God. That is true salvation, friends. It's not walking with one foot in both camps. It's not being lukewarm as the Laodicea church, the end time church is called by Jesus. It is being so transformed that you are burning coal, burning with the passion of Jesus. And wherever you go, you release fire. Wherever you go, you release the love of God. Wherever you go, you are infectious. People are not, you are not infected by them. They are infected by the fire of God within you. Friends, that's the salvation that I came into. That is the salvation that happened the night that I asked Jesus to come into my life. Wanting to commit suicide because I was so disgusted by my life, by where I've been, by what had happened. I would rather die than continue. And I met Jesus Christ, the Savior of my soul. And many years later, I walked into a church where his spirit was alive and where the people were full of his spirit. And I thank God for that church today, friends. It was a little hippie church. It was an evangelical church. It was a church that was based on reaching the lost. It was called the Invisible Church in Durban, led by Nelson Nurse. That church and that man led me into an understanding of the revelation of salvation and I will be eternally grateful to him. And it's because of the revelation of walking into a firehouse of spirit that my life has never, ever changed. And I'm as in love with Jesus today as I was that first day. In fact, I'm far more in love with him because my love for him just keeps growing every single day. It's never depleted. It's never got less. And I've never blamed him for what life has to throw at us. Friends, true salvation changes a person. And if you have not been transformed, you have to go back and have a look at the moment of your salvation. Was it a cry of deep repentance or was it a feel-good prayer that, put, that ticked the box 
And then you landed up being among a whole lot of people that had tick boxes, but no one's life was transformed. That, friends, is a deceptive lie. It's a form of godliness and denying the power, and God says have nothing to do with that. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, it takes a confession. It takes a repentance to have a cleansing and to have a transformation. Jesus has the authority to take our sins from us because of the cross. In John 1 verse 29b it says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Colossians 2 verse 3 to 4, uh, sorry, 13 to 14, it says, Even when you were dead in your sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to go and have foreskins cut anymore. It means that we have to have a revelation that our flesh is uncircumcised until we repent and he plants a circumcised heart within us, friends. God made you alive with him when he forgave us all our offenses. Having erased all the charges that were brought against us, you have to understand that you have charges that have been brought against you by the enemy, the devil. The devil has got charges against you for violating the kingdom of God and for coming into agreement with his kingdom. He owns you. And when God comes along and says, no, I want him, he says, you can't have him because look at the charges. He is guilty. Therefore, he belongs in my prison. He is a power. He's a principality. He has a country. He rules the kingdom of darkness. And he will not let you go if he can prove that you belong to him. He has charges against you. But God, when Jesus came and he forgave us and he erased all the charges that were brought against us, along with their obligations that were hostile to us, he took these charges away when he nailed them to the cross. In 1 John 2 verse 2, um, to 4 and verse 6 it says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world you see friends when Jesus hung on that cross he said anybody that truly repents godly repentance and confesses I will take upon myself the the um, the charges that have been laid against them and I will put that on myself and I will receive the blame and they will be left blameless. But friends, he will not do that to somebody that is remorseful. And he will not do that to somebody that has never truly repented for their sins. Goes on to say, how can we be sure, as, uh, how can we be sure that we have come to know him if we continually keep his commands? That's how you're sure that you know him. When you start doing what he does. It goes on to say in verse 6, the one who says that he abides in him must live the same way he himself lived. 1 John, New Testament says this, you are truly redeemed. You are truly saved when you abide by the commandments of God and when you live the way that he did. So in other words, when you have been transformed to think like him, to look like him, to know him, to follow his ways, to follow his will. And it's not from effort and it's not from self-control. It's from a repulsion of the worldly system and that which you came out of. That, friends, is the revelation and the security and the seal of true redemption and true salvation.
So what does God remember no more about us? Well, Psalm 32 is a wonderful scripture that David wrote, and I'm going to quote to you verse 1 to 2 and verse 5. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit, no falsehood, no double-mindedness, purity. I acknowledge, this is David speaking, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up. My iniquity, I said, I will confess. My transgressions to the Lord till all was told and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. So he acknowledged his sin. He did not cover up any iniquity and he confessed his transgressions to the Lord until all was told and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Friends, there is a telling of all. There is coming before the Father and saying, Father, show me. Show me what I'm guilty of. Show me what it is that the enemy holds against me. Show me what I need to repent for and confess for. Show me in my bloodline what I need to confess for and repent for. Show me. And as you ask him, he shows you. Show me who I've got unforgiveness against. Show me what I've embraced that's an offense to you. You see, friends, it is a, a broken spirit and a cartwright's heart. It is a, it's, it's a place of absolute rendering yourself before him. And say, God, please show me, please show me so that I can be free of every single charge. I place it on you. I place it on you as I repent and I confess and I ask you to forgive me. The word sin means grievous offenses. It means wandering from the path of righteousness. It means violating God's law. Friends, every time we wander from the path of righteousness or we violate God's law, we once again behave according to the old man, to the flesh that died on the cross. Iniquity is perversity. It's being twisted. In other words, it's thinking warped. It's, it's distorted, it's wickedness, and it's patterns that have been established through bloodlines or cultures that we consider to be right, neural paths that we consider to be right. But God says, that is an offense to me. And we've got to come before him where our minds are twisted and warped and perverted. And we've got to say, we are so sorry, God. We repent for where that door was opened. We ask you please to forgive us. And he comes and he comes and he transforms our mind by the renewing and, and setting us free from every demonic hold that's had a legal right to hold onto us and from setting us free from every door that was opened. Friends, we're the only ones that can open a door to Jesus, but we're also the ones that can open a door to the enemy. And our repentance and our confession shuts the door to the enemy so that we can fully walk into the pathway of righteousness. Now, transgressions means moral and re religious rebellion. It means revolt against the things of God, and it means violation. So David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, which is my grievous offense of violating the, the, the laws of God, walking away from the paths of righteousness. I did not cover up my perversity, my twisted mind, my distorted wickedness, all the patterns that are in my family. And I confess my transgressions, my, re my religious rebellion, my revolt against you, my violations. And when I did that, you instantly forgave me, swept it clean. Friends, salvation and the process of healing does not have to take forever. It is an instant healing 
after the digging deep for the revelation of true repentance and confession. And that's where the breakthrough comes. That's where the explosion happens in your heart. That's where you are transformed because you have been set free from those soul ties, from those bondages, from those prisons, from those, that captivity. Jesus said that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me and He has anointed me to heal the brokenhearted, traumas, um, all the things that have broken us and hurt us, friends. To set the captives free, the captivity, we have captivity to our sin. But we are in prison to our transgressions and our iniquity. And as we confess and we repent and we ask him to forgive him, us, that, my friends, is salvation. A prayer, said in a prayer line or on your own, a quickie, Jesus come into my life, hallelujah, glory, hallelujah, now I'm saved. But nothing changed. Is a deception, it's a lie, and it's not true salvation. And it's those people that backslide. Well, they're not actually backsliding. They never were forward going. They just added icing sugar to a rotten cake. But when it comes to true repentance and true confession, friends, it is opening up that cake and saying, God, shine your light, reveal everything to me that is an offense to you so that we can have a brand new cake. That's the difference, friends. In Romans 4 verse 7 to 8, it says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will not count against him. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 38 verse 17b says, For you have cast all my sins behind your back. Isaiah 43 verse 25 says, I, even I am he, who blots out your transgressions. He's got a really good system of tippics. <laughs> For my own sake, and will not remember your sins. Friends, why does God do it? It's for his sake. Because he's looking for family. He's looking for worshippers. He's looking for people that will worship him in spirit and truth. He's looking for people that will love him unconditionally. And because of his sake, I desperately want you, says the Lord. I want you to love me. I want you to understand me. I want you to get to know me. I want you. And because of that, when we come and we say we are so sorry, with such a deep revelation, he comes and he blots out our sin and he transforms us, he cleanses us, he purifies us so that he can have those that he so desperately desires and wants and has been desperate to have since the very beginning that he created this world. He created Adam and Eve to fill that place. They fell. He separated a people unto himself when he, when he had a covenant with Noah. They fell. He separated Israel to himself. They fell. And God is still looking for those people, friends. And now he's released his spirit to transform us and help us to be those people. That is true salvation goes on in Isaiah 44 verse 22 it says I have wiped away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist return to me for I have redeemed you Jeremiah 31 34 says know the Lord friends that is a deep revelation perception of intimate knowing the Lord it's that intimacy between a man and a woman know him intimately 
For they will, they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You know, people couldn't know him intimately in the Old Testament. That is the privilege of the death on the cross, the resurrected Christ, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We are the generation to know him intimately. And when he was talking to Jeremiah, he was talking about those that were coming, us, that are able to know him intimately. Hebrews 8 verse 12 says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Hebrews 10 verse 16 to 17 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their heart and into their minds will I write them and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Malachi 7 verse 18 and 19 says, Who is a God like unto you that pardons iniquities and passes off the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? He retains not his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And you will cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. Friends, if we have a true revelation of our repentance, we would not need inner healing. We would not need psychologists and psychiatrists continuously trying to work out who we are and what we're meant to be. But we would have a revelation of knowing Jesus. We would have a revelation, excuse me, <coughs> of being able to go into that inner place with him, that secret place, into rest with him. We would be able to come to him with everything that is a burden, where we are heavy laid, we would be able to lay it on him. We would be able to find answers from him because he is in us. He has put written his laws in our heart and in our minds. We think like him. We sense him. We feel him. We know when he's not happy. We know when he is happy. We know how to worship him. But friends, it's because we have not understood the power of true salvation. That we are still walking around thinking that we've asked him to make a difference, but holding on to that which we've never been set free of because nobody told us what the effect of true repentance looks like. And God has called us into a deep revelation of true repentance. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Friends, we cannot get close to God while our sin stands between us. Why is our sin standing between us? Because we've never had the revelation of true repentance and repulsion for that which was once part of our life. True repentance and confession results in a life free of the past, a transformed life from ashes to beauty with no record of the past. The former things have passed away. Behold, I make all things new, God says. In Messiah 43, he says, forget the former things. And do not dwell on the past. So friends, the God that never remembers is the God that we come to with true repentance and confession. 
that we lay ourselves bare before him, that we ask him to deal deeply in our hearts, to forgive us our sins, our iniquities, and our transgressions. Then he covers us with the blood by putting that condemnation and guilt on the cross. He fills us up with his spirit. That is grace, the divine influence upon the heart reflected through the life. And then he says, you are a new creation. I remember nothing of the old man. I want you to remember nothing of the old man. And I want you to walk in the fullness of the predestined state that I created you to be. And I will lead you, I will teach you, I will guide you until I can place my mantle on you because you've come into the fullness of a transformed mind, a sanctified heart. And I can trust you with my glory. God is looking for glory carriers. He's looking for people that he can trust with his glory. He's looking for those that have gone through the process of true salvation. Friends, I hope that's you because that is my cry, God. I thank you that you will not shortcut the process because I want the fullness of your glory. Now the God that never forgets, who is the God that never forgets? Well, he never forgets covenants. He never forgets oaths. He never forgets the prayer of the saints and he never forgets spoken words. Remember, God is the same yesterday, today and forever. We live in a, in a time of time periods, seasons and times and eras. But in God, it's all one day. A, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So what happened a thousand years ago was yesterday to God. He remembers everything. He never ever forgets that. And God lives in the fullness of those promises as if he just made them yesterday and he's still busy unfolding them. And we have to get the revelation of the God that never ever forgets to have a revelation of how powerful, how big and how mighty God is and how much we can trust him with our lives because he is not a man that he should lie. What does he never forget? Covenants. What are covenants? They are alliances and unions and treaties and contracts that have been made between God and us. A marriage covenant is death, until death us do part, but a relational covenant with God is eternal. Oaths, what are oaths? That's to swear a promise or to swear a curse. It is a promise, it's a pledge, it is a sacred restraint, it is a boundary. Now God is a God of boundaries and the enemy understands boundaries and he knows when we go outside of our boundaries and God gives us authority within boundaries. And friends, an oath in the positive is a promise to be fulfilled, but in the negative it is a curse against our lives. And oaths are remembered whether they are curses or promises. And it is repentance that breaks the power of an oath that's been taken as a curse. We have to understand that. And especially when it's been on our bloodline or things that we've done, where the power of that curse still carries on unless it is repented for. Prayer, prayer means requests or supplications made before the Lord. It means to appeal, to request, to plea before our God. It means to intervene on behalf of somebody else and to have an entreaty of judgment. So when we're praying for others, when we're petitioning God for the sake of others, when we say, God, don't judge them, give them mercy so that you can lead them into the fullness of their salvation. Words means utterances and speech, and God never forgets covenants, 
oaths, prayers or words. He is the same God yesterday, today and forever and there's no time between him and wherever God has made a promise on land, on people, on places or bloodline, he will fulfill them because he is superimposing and he's just looking for obedient people that he can use to fulfill his promises. I just want to mention a few covenants that were written in the Bible. So God's covenant with Moses and the people of Israel is recorded in Deuteronomy 29 verse 10 to 12. <clears throat> all of you are standing today in the presence of your God. Friends, covenants are established in the presence of God. So if you want to, to find out what it is that God has got for you, or you want him to create something and establish a covenant for you, it comes from the presence of the, of the Lord. It comes from times of worship. It comes from where God and man meet face to face. To enter into a covenant with the Lord your God and into the oath that he is about to make with you today so that he will elevate you to be a people for him and he will be your God to you just as he promised you and swore to your ancestors Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so here they're standing and God said, I made that covenant between Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I want to fulfill that covenant. You come into my presence. You come and receive it so that I can fulfill it and that you can be my people. And God is always looking for people where he, that he can use to fulfill covenants that have been made of old. And God continuously is looking for those that he can call my people so that he can fulfill their covenant, his covenant on them. Friends, we are in the covenant of God because Israel refused to follow in what he had for them. God opened it wider and established a covenant with us, pagans, that have come to repentance as well. So we're very grateful to that. But we are part of the same covenant, one new man, one new man, Jew or Gentile, one new man, same God, same covenant, same call, true repentance, true confession. He made a covenant with, with um, Noah in Genesis 5, 9 verse 15. God covenanted with Noah and, and the sign that he left behind as a sign of the covenant was the rainbow. God often leaves a sign of the covenant to remind us. Just like when he made the covenant with, with Jacob, renamed him Israel, Jacob was left with a limp. <clears throat> God will often leave something as a reminder to remind us that we are covenanted with him. In Genesis 9 verse 15, he says, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. So God promised Noah, and that covenant is still standing today, that he will never ever again use water to destroy the whole world. And it's not just to Noah, it was also to the creatures that he made that promise, and he made it to the world, to the earth as well. He said, I'm never going to use waters again to destroy the earth. Friends, we're living under that covenant. The, the, the righteous and the unrighteous are living under that covenant. Every, see, every time we see a rainbow, God reminds us that you're living under the covenant, that the waters will never ever again cover the whole earth and destroy all of creation and all of mankind. With Abraham, Exodus 2 verse 24, the Lord heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when we come before the Father, we can put a demand on covenant. Yeah, they were, they were groaning in his presence, 
and they reminded him of the covenant. They put a demand on the covenant that he had established with Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, uh, Jacob. <clears throat> In Leviticus 26 verse 42, it says, Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember, and I will remember the land. So God covenants with people, but he also covenants with land, he covenants with places, and he covenants with bloodline. Isaiah 49 verse 15b to 16a, As for me, I will never forget you. Look, I've ascribed you on the palms of my hand. Now friends, the enemy doesn't create, he cannot create. So all he can ever do is counterfeit. And as God says, I am putting a blessing on a bloodline, and that bloodline has got a covenant on it like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The enemy also does the same thing. He also puts curses on bloodlines, and he tries to own that. He can only ever counterfeit. So everything that he does and brags about and shows off is actually a very bad copy of the truth of what God has got. And God covenants with individuals. He covenants with bloodlines. He covenants with places. He covenants with land. Jeremiah 11 verse 5 says, I will fulfill the oath that I made with your ancestors to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the case is today. Okay, so God looks for people. God looks for people who will come into agreement with his purposes so that his promises can be fulfilled. Our obedience and perfect timing are such, have such a great part to play in the manifestations of things, but God never forgets. So this is the promise. God is looking to fulfill it. He's looking for people to help him to manifest it on, and he's looking for the perfect timing. Now, we know that, God, you promised me, but nothing's happening. Well, friends, there are three parts to play here. You have to come into agreement with heaven, and you've got to allow God to wait for the perfect timing to establish that. And if that doesn't happen, God looks for a next generation. But his promises are going to be fulfilled, just like we saw with the Israelites. They did not come into submission in, in, the, in, the, in the wilderness. They would not allow God to do what he wanted to do in two weeks. They wouldn't allow to do. So he just waited for a next generation. And, 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 and he found the next generation led by um, by Caleb and by Joshua. Joshua led it. Caleb stood for the promises of God. He put a demand on the promises of God. God fulfilled that promise with him. And it happened the moment the previous generation was removed. And God said, now I've found a generation that are prepared to allow me to use them. Whose side are you on? I'm the commander of the Lord's army. You come unto my side. And prepared to wait on the perfect timing of God. And that's why with every single step of the way, they had to hear God. What is it you want us to do now? What is You see, friends, we have to come into agreement and do what God wants. Instead, we ask God to do what we want. It's never going to happen. And that's when we do not understand what covenant is all about. We are covenanted with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit, and with every angel in heaven. But we have to submit to what they're doing. They don't come and do what we demand for them to do. So our obedience and perfect timing releases the, the promises of God. Our prayers are like incense before the throne and they are there forever. Once the prayers have gone up, they are there forever. Friends, you might be dead and gone for generations. Your prayers still have power. 
and they're still working. That is why the prayers of a parent for their children is so powerful. Grandparents for their grandchildren is so powerful. People praying for a town or a city, it's so powerful. People praying for a country, the prayers are there. He's looking for a people to manifest them on. Friends, God has promised incredible things over our country. He's looking for a people he can manifest them on. He's looking for a people that will love him more than themselves, more than the system of this world, and more than the opinion of man. He's looking for a bold, courageous people that are not shaken so that he can manifest the promises on them. God wants to release glory and revival, but he's looking for glory carriers and revival prayers. That's who he's looking for. And until we become that, he cannot release the promise that he has for our country. Prayers are before the throne. Revelation 5 verse 8, it says, When the Lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures bowed down in front of him. Each held a harp and a golden bowl full of incense. The prayers of the saints. The prayers of saints are held in golden bowls. Revelation 8 verse 3 to 4, Another angel came with a golden censer and stood at the altar. He was given a large quantity of incense to offer on the golden altar before the throne, along with the prayer of the saints. The smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints went up from the angels, uh, from the angel's hand to God. Every prayer is before the throne. Every prayer that you pray comes up before the throne. Every single prayer. God hears every single prayer. And those prayers are as instincts. They never disappear. And God is waiting to fulfill the promises, friends. And we have to have a revelation of that. And that is why we do not move ancient stones. We do not move that which has been established by the people that have been there before us. It says in Proverbs 22 verse 28, do not remove ancient, which is everlasting and continuous boundary stones, which is territory or regions of darkness that has been set up by our ancestors. When our ancestors come and they bring the prayers before the Father for a place, for a people, for a country, and they push back the darkness, friends, and they push it back through their prayers, through their sacrifices, through their finances, through the way that they've lived their lives to open the portal, to open the heavens, and they have established spiritual boundary lines. Friends, we cannot come with a modern idea and a modern revelation and think we can just change everything, remove everything. It's not that important. And we can start again because after all, I'm the man of the hour, I'm the woman of the hour, and I'm going to do this thing. God says, do not remove that which other people paid their lives for. And it's because what they have opened and what they've established and those ancient everlasting uh, territory stones that have established things and have opened the heavens. Friends, it grieves the heart of God to see how many church communities are shutting down because he can't find a people to open them. They were opened. They were portals that were opened. And the next generation has loved the world more than God. And they have been like the Philistines putting rocks in the well and shutting the wells. And God is looking for a people that will open it again. When they have prayed, when they've sowed finances, when they've pushed back friends, people have paid and sown for the kingdom of God to be established. Emotionally, physically, financially, they have established portals. And we cannot allow the enemy to come in through unbelievers and shut those portals. We have a responsibility to be able to do that. And so we look at the example of, of Isaac. 
And it said that Isaac went and he reopened all the well. Isaac was in a desert. And in the time of desert, nobody was flourishing. Friends, we are in a time of desert right now. We are a time where people have lost finances. People have been sick. People have come under incredible onslaught. They've lost family members. They've lost finances. They're in a desert and they are just surviving. In that time of being just in the desert, Isaac put a command on covenant. And he established, he sowed seed. The first thing is, friends, sow seed so that God can come and he can establish it. And when I talk about seed, I'm not talking about giving finances into the first thing that you hear or see. I'm talking about looking to see where the covenant of life has been established and going there and saying, God, I want to, I want to reopen that old covenant. I want to be part of that. I want to establish it. You know, it just I just want to go back. You know that many, many, many years ago, there was an incredible move of God in the 70s that was awakened in Durban through the Invisible Church, as I mentioned it earlier on. It was an incredible move of God. There were so many salvations. So many people came off the streets. There was such a mighty move of God. It was a simple doctrine. It was an uncomplicated doctrine. It was a repent, be baptized, filled with the Spirit, allow the Spirit of God to move. There were so many miracles. There was just such a revival that happened. So many people were born again under that anointing. Out of that anointing, in Durban, God established two strong churches. The one was Glenridge and the other one was Victory Faith and Pantown. And both those churches carried on in the same well. They carried under the same anointing. And then people were sent out all over the world. And they were establishing little wells wherever they went. Some of them floundered. Some of them didn't have a really deep theology. Some of them had gone for the ride but didn't have a deep revelation of God. And some of them might have fallen along the journey. But friends, all these years later, there are still many all over the world that are drinking from the well that was opened in that time. There are wells opened of worship, of the supernatural, of the power of God that have been opened in our city we see a Durban Christian Center that has had such a strong move of God. There is an open portal in the city. There are open portals in other cities. But God is looking for a generation that is not teaching a cheap gospel and putting icing sugar on rotten cakes that have a form of godliness and no power. And he's saying, will you be the Isaac to go and open the wells again? Now I want to read to you what Isaac did. Genesis 26 verse 18, Isaac dug again the wells that his father had first dug during his lifetime because the Philistines had filled them with sand after Abraham's death. Friends, there are many, many, many wells that have been filled by Philistines, unbelievers, pagans, um, compromising Christians, where they have filled the well with sand and people can't drink from that well at the moment. And Isaac went and he re-dug the wells, but he didn't only re-dig the wells, he gave them the same name. And that's important because names have meanings. Names establish authority. Names have power. There's something in the name that establishes when God gives a name, he gives it with a power release. And it's not just a modern little thing to go change names for the sake of changing names and giving it a cool name. You go back and you say, Father, what have you named this? What is the name that you gave to the lampstand in this city so that your glory can come? And when I look at the city of Durban, I see a city of, 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 of 
people being sent internationally. It's a city of people being sent. It's an apostolic city. It's a city of worship. It's a city that has seen the supernatural. It is a city that has raised up mighty men and women of God all over the nations. It is a city that still carries that well. It's still got that living water. And God is looking for Isaac to go and open the wells again. To open the wells of an undiluted gospel that is not blurred by man's opinion and man's lifestyles and worldly systems and worldly ways of building business. But are opened by a raw revelation of salvation and repentance and a radical revelation that says, I believe in God and I believe in the supernatural and I believe he is who he is. That has the power of God and the supernatural of God that shifts, opens, shakes and releases things. God calls Durban the birthing city. And he said he was going to birth this new season out of Durban. And friends, as a birthing city, we should be travailing in labor. Travailing, travailing, travailing until it's birthed out of the city that's already birthed so much. Every city has a well, every city has a portal, every city has something that God has put an anointing there and he's looking for Isaacs to go and open it up again, to find it again, to release it again and give it the same name, friends. We see that the Azusa Street revival was a revival of, of speaking in tongues. That, that portal's got to be opened again. The revival of the Baptist church, which was a revival of baptism, those portals have never lost power, friends. But what do we do? We zero in on one little thing and we forget everything else. And he's saying, open the old wells. Get a hold of them again. Drink from them again. But don't only do that, friends. Release the new thing that God has got in this season. So he dug up those that were closed by the Philistines. There are many Philistines that have shut many, many wells in South Africa, but all over the world. And the biggest Philistine lie was a deception that said that you can you could live like hell and go to heaven and there's no power in that. That is sand from Philistines and it's got to be dug up so that the well of life can be released again. Isaac renamed the wells with the same name that his father called them. Digged means he searched, he explored, he delved and he sought until he found. And then it goes and says in verse 20 that he dug new wells. And friends, not only do we need to be digging up the old wells, we need to be digging new wells. Isaac dug a well that caused a quarrel with the herdsmen of, of Gerar, and he called it Essek, which means contention. And he walked away. He then dug a well that caused a quarrel again, and he called it Sitna, which means strife. And he walked away. Now there's a lesson in that, friends. <clears throat> Isaac dug two wells, life-giving water wells. But the people weren't happy about it and they wanted ownership of it. Isaac gave us the example, you go digging the wells. You don't worry about people's attitude. If they don't want you to share and they want to be the king of the castle and they want to build a little kingdom that's all about them, this is our well, we're not sharing it, you can't have any because it's me, it's my kingdom, it's my church, it's all about me, it's inclusive, these big walls around are just so that I can look important, give it to them. Don't get caught up in the contention and don't get caught up in the strife. Walk away until you find that well that is a spacious place. And wherever God drinks a well, it's for everybody. Every time that God wanted to do something, he sent a messenger to a well that was open for everybody. Jesus himself went to the Samaritan well, the well of Jacob, that was open for everybody. 
that's where he chose to drink. Friends, don't drink from people that want to take claim to the world. The waters, the living waters belongs to God. And if they are so tight-fisted and it's all about me and everything's about building my kingdom, it's called contention and it's called strife. Walk away from it. Isaac walked away from it. Verse 22, Isaac moved on from there and dug another well and not, no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, which means wide streets. Now the Lord has given us room and we will flourish. I want to say to you, friends, dig up the old well. Go find out what happened in your area before. Go find out who carried anointing before. There are mighty, mighty men and women of God that have been carrying anointing for years. I know that in Natal we had the early settlers coming from Nor Norway. We had settlers coming from Germany. They did amazing things. Go dig up those wells again. But dig new wells. But find your rear bath. Find your spacious place. Don't shut the well just the way that the Philistines do. Don't speak negatively of it. Don't get caught up in the quarrel. Don't go and criticize it. Walk away. Release the living waters and walk away. But settle in your rear bath, in your spacious place, in the place that you can flourish. Jesus, I just mentioned the well, met the woman at the well in John 4 verse 12 to 14. And, and they said, uh, you're no greater than our ancestor Jacob, she said, who gave us the well. Jesus answered her, <clears throat> everyone who drinks water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The waters that I will give him will become a well of water for him, springing up to eternal life. It will be within him. And friends, the well that Jesus wants us to dig is the well of water within us, the transforming, the grace that changes our lives. But we've got to be prepared to give it out wherever we are. So God digs wells within us. But wherever the corporate anointing is, there is a well in that place. There's a well in that city. There's a corporate well that gets established. And God says, don't you shut that corporate well, but go and dig new ones so that the living waters can continue to grow. So God wants us to discover the wells. The second thing he wants us to do, he wants us to rediscover the open portals. You know, it was said of John G. Lake in Spokane, Washington, that the time that he lived there, 1914 to 1935, it was the healthiest city in the world. That portal of health is still open in Spokane. And if somebody is just prepared to go and drink from that well, they can release the waters again that has been blocked up, maybe by religion, maybe by political spirits, because the two things that always come against the living waters is religious spirits and political spirits. They always destroy the wells of God. But if you go back there, you can reopen those wells. And so with every city, with every town, it's finding out what the portal was that was opened by our ancestors. What were the boundary lines that were established? What did people plow their lives into to establish? Now, once again, I'm just going to share a little bit of testimony with you. I hope that, that you, you're learning and that you're growing in what I'm sharing. But we were moved to Howick and we discovered that the church in Howick, which we'd actually been part of in the 70s, had an incredible well of worship, an incredible anointing of the presence of God. But God showed me that there was a well, a portal open in that city for healing. And I was praying one night and I said, God, what is it that you've called this town to, this city to? And God said, look around and what do you see? And often we will see the truth because the enemy will sit as the, the, the prostitute on the waters, claiming the waters for him. 
that actually belonged to the well of Jesus Christ. And what I saw was at the both entrances into the city, into the town, there was a, a, a home for, for mentally um, handicapped people. Both entrances, there were two different homes, both for retarded people, mentally handicapped people, people that were born with, with mental problems, both of them sitting at each entrance of the town. In the town, there was an incredible amount of doctor's rooms for the small town that it was at that time. It's grown since then. Specialists of every form were moving into town, opening up offices in the town. There was also an incredible amount of new age healing, crystal healing, Reiki healing, all kinds of new age people were drawn there for the power of healing. And I said, God, I see everywhere that people are here because they are sick and need healing. And God said, because I established Howick as a portal of healing. And I'm looking for a people that will come into agreement so that I can release the glory of the supernatural healing and raising of the dead in this town. And you know what, friends? I find it very interesting that it was in that town that my son-in-law was raised from the dead. And that was a prophetic statement of what God is wanting to do in that town. And he's looking for a people that will usher in the fullness of the glory of that town. And I want to say this to you. Every town has a portal. And we have to go and discover what that portal is so that we can dig up that well again. So that we can drink from that well. But we can establish new wells. Some, some towns have been established with a portal for education. To equip the church. To equip the body of Christ. Some have been established out of a portal of evangelism. You go and find what it is that you have in your area and town. Open that well again and be the glory carrier to release the fullness of the glory. Do you know that in all these years that the church was established in the 70s and we were part of it in the 70s, we were part of it in the 80s and eventually we were able to, to lead it from, um, I think, 98 um, right through until 2014. Every single era, every decade, there was an incredible move of the presence of God. And the presence of God has never left the house. The worship is amazing. The presence is amazing. The peace is amazing. People walk in and they can feel it because that portal has never left. It didn't matter who the people were and it didn't matter who came and who went. But that open portal has stayed. And I want to say to you, friends, Find the portal, go look for the portal, go dig, go search, go explore, go delve and go seek it so that you can open that well and you can walk in the fullness and take the prostitute off the waters that has blocked it up like Philistines with sand and taken ownership of it because that is what God has got for his kingdom to be established. We see the example in the word of God with the pool of Bethsaida where they had that pool, the waters, and where the moment the waters were moving because a healing angel was sent in there, whoever got into that water was healed. And so we see the same pattern in the, um, in, in the New Testament with the pool of Bethsaida in John 5 verse 1 to 5. And we see the same um, uh, example being given to us in 2 Kings 13 verse 21, where it said that Elisha's bones were in a grave and they came and took a dead man. They dug up the grave to bury the dead man. And war came or there was, a, there was something that disturbed them. They threw the body into there. And the moment that the dead man touched the bones of Elisha, he was raised up to life. Why, friends? Because anointing and glory is eternal. Because when God released 
eternal glory on Elisha. The double portion on Elisha. He carried it forever. Now, God is not telling us to go dig up the, the graves of those that carried anointing once and go lie on their bones. That is just absolutely evil. But the enemy, the counterfeit, does silly things like that. But what he's saying is recognize the anointing is still there. Recognize the portal is still there. Go and dig up what that person did and establish. Go and receive it so that you can walk in the fullness. I'm looking for glory carriers and I will use the whosoever is prepared to go pick up that which has been left behind. Remember, mantles are left on earth, but they carry eternal glory. Jesus left the fivefold mantle that he was carrying on earth and we are still walking in it today. He just gives it to some. We don't all carry the whole thing. We can't. We would burn out. So he gives different people different things. But together, we carry the fullness of the mantle that Jesus left behind. And then there's the mantle of previous revivalists. And I just love this. So I'm going to share this story with you. Dr. Edwin Orr, who died in 1987, was a great authority on revival in the church and a lecturer at Wheaton College. He took some of the students from America in 1940 to a brief visit to England to visit Epworth um, Refectory, where John Wesley was based. Beside John Wesley's bed were two kneel-worn impressions in the carpet, where it was said that John Wesley knelt for hours to pray for England, for the social and the spiritual renewal of England. It's just amazing that with the tale of two cities um, that Dickens wrote, it was the tale of England, of London, and the tale of Paris. And there was war and chaos and death happening at, in Paris at the same time when there was peace happening in England. And people said, why did this happen? It's such a short space between them. Why was there so much war in the one and so little in the other? And they said, because that was the time that the Wesley brothers were praying for England praying for the society and transforming the society, they opened a portal, which today we call Methodism, but they opened a portal of revival in England at the time that there was death and chaos happening in, in, in Paris and in France. Anyway, so that he took these students to go to, um, to the room where John Wesley was, and, and in that room was a carpet that had these nail marks in, where it said that John paid, paid for hours for England and for the society and the spiritual renewal. As the students were getting on the bus, he noticed that one of the students were not with them. Going back upstairs, he found that student kneeling on the carpet in the kneel holes, with his face with, praying on with his face on the bed, crying out to God, "Do it again, Lord! Do it again! Do it again, Lord! Do it again!" Edwin all placed his hand on the student's shoulder and he said gently to him, "Come on, Billy." We must be going. And Billy Graham rose up and got on the bus. Friends, he went and he found an open portal. And he said, I want that. You did it then, you could do it again. And I'm here. I want it for my generation. I want to open this well again. And as he did that, as he cried out to God, he received the mantle. That was on John Wesley. And I want to say to you, friends, God is looking for people that will go and dig and open up and go and carry on until they find it. Because our generation needs the revival that God has promised. Stories like this absolutely just 
leave me undone because he will do it again. He will. He's got so much promise for the world, friends. It looks like the enemy's winning. I want to tell you the enemy's only winning because the church is asleep. Wake up, bride of Christ, and go and fetch what it is that God has got for you. Go dig up again the old wells, but don't stop there. Dig the new ones too. Dig, because there's so much living waters that God wants to pour out in the world today. <clears throat> oh, sorry. And then we have to know that words continue working. Proverbs 12 verse 19 says, The lip which means the speech or the bank of a river of truth will be established forever. Truth spoken is established forever. It is like banks that gets established. It's those boundaries, those ancient boundary stones that gets established. And the truth will be established forever. Proverbs 18 verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit of it. Friends, you decide on the death in your life and the life in your life. You're the one. It's in your hands. Your life and your death is in your hands. God put it into action. God has a predestined time for all of us to go to be with him. But what happens between that is in the power of your mouth. You speak life or you speak death. It's your choice and you will eat the fruit of that. And what you establish will be established and there's nothing God can do about that because he gave it to you. He gave you the authority. Matthew 12 verse 36 says, I tell you on judgment day, people will give an account of every thoughtless word that they have spoken. Because of your words, you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. Friends, whatever you've done in the past that has condemned you, the devil is standing there with an ordinance accusing you night and day before the Father, saying she's condemned, she's condemned, she's condemned. He's condemned, he's condemned, he's condemned. It's only true repentance that can break that and put that ordinance on the cross. But then you've got to put a guard on your mouth. You've got to make a covenant with your mouth so that what comes out of your mouth is life and life and abundance that you don't re-establish a curse against yourself again. 1 Peter 4 verse 11 says, If any man speaks, let him speak the oracles of God, the very words of God. If any man ministers, let him do so with the ability which God has given, that God will in all things be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom, he be, uh, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, when the enemy can find unrepented for and unconfessed hidden sins, words oaths and covenant he will put a demand on them before the father it says in revelations that he stands before the father day and night accusing accusing the children of god the brethren the brothers and sisters of god 1 peter 5 verse 8 and 9 says be alert be self-controlled sober-minded your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him and stand firm 
What is he looking for? He's looking for curses coming out of your mouth. He's looking for words coming out of your mouth. He's looking for hidden sin. He's looking for hidden things that have not been confessed. And if he can find them, you see, friends, confession breaks it. It's gone into the ocean of forgetfulness. It will never be remembered again. But what he finds between now and then, he will bring up and he will try and hold it against you again. That is why we've got to be sober-minded self-controlled we've got to watch and pray we've got to be alert we've got to put a guard on our mouth we cannot speak thoughtless things and we've got to make sure that we don't re-establish things that can be held against our lives because the power of life and death is literally what comes out of our mouth but repentance moves removes that destruction and places it on the cross and sets us free we have to understand that the enemy is a deceiver. Friends, he wants to deceive us. He wants us to believe that the God that says, I will never remember, remembers everything. And the God that says, I will never forget, forgets everything. He wants to twist them around. He wants to confuse us. And so many of us live as if it is has been twisted around and as if we are confused. We still feel guilty. We still feel full of shame. We still hold on to the old man. The old man still has power in our life today because we do not understand that true repentance has literally cut that off us. It has no part to play in our future. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's nothing to feel scared of. There's nothing to feel worried about because confession, bringing it into the light and repentance, it has to come into the light. If it's hidden, it still has power. The power of sin is in secrecy. And if there's anything that you know is hidden, friends, he's found a landing pad. And he's going to use it against you. Bring it into the light. Confess it. Repent for it. Break free of it. So that you can walk in freedom. It's hanging on the cross. It has no power. So that you can be everything God has wanted you to be. Do not believe the deceiver that says that the God who says I forget hasn't forgotten. He has no clue what you're talking about. When you come and you say, God, I'm so sorry. I feel so ashamed for what happened 20 years ago. What are you talking about? I have no record of it. There's nothing. What are you talking about? It's just the enemy trying to put you back into the captivity that Jesus died to take you out of. Friends, it's really important. He continually wants us to feel guilty, to feel shame, to, have, uh, to, feel, to be rendered useless. The fear of man, the fear of man's opinion, the fear of man, what do men think of us? It is a lie to keep you useless. And you've got to say, God, I refuse to listen to that deception a second longer. I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I have repented. I have confessed everything till all was told, David said. There is nothing. There's not a shadow in my life. Teach me to walk in the fullness. If you say something wrong or you do something wrong, God, I'm so sorry about that. I recognize immediately that it's an offense to you and therefore I want nothing to do with that. Friends, daily repentance. The, 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 the prayer of God tells us, repent. Why do we need to repent? Because you don't want to give the devil a landing pad. Has Jesus forgiven you? Yes. Yesterday, today and forever. But every single time that you do something that you know it's offense of God, we come into right standing by just saying, God, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. Thank you that that's washed off my life. And you live that clean hands and a pure heart before the Father. 
But he also wants you to believe that God doesn't remember you, that God doesn't keep his promises, that you've got to strive to please God. Friends, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Because when God said, I will do it, I will do it. And God is not a man that he should lie and he does not forget. We overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. When he accuses you, you say, wait a minute, buddy. That's what the blood did. And this is who I am. The blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. That's under the blood and I'm a new creation. And that's how we walk in the authority that God has given us. He wants us to believe that God's forgotten us, that God doesn't remember our prayers, that God doesn't care about us, that our work has no long has got no long-term value. God, I poured my life out, but there's no long-term value. Friends, every single drop of finance, prayer, blood, sweat, and tears that you poured out for the kingdom's sake will not be forgotten. God will remember it all because He promised. He does. God honors his covenants and because of that we live in fear we start striving and we get angry with God and we turn from him because we believe the deception of the enemy to stand unshakably on the rock of Jesus Christ we have to have revelation of the truth God is the God that never ever remembers God is the God that never ever forgets and we have to know that unshakably in our spirit now, I'm quickly going to share three testimonies with you. You've still got a minute to, to give me your ears. And just to be able to explain to you how God taught me. You know, many, many years ago, when I, it's literally 40 years ago, in, in, 2000, in 1981, I fell pregnant with my second daughter. And in waiting to, for her and waiting to hear what God has got, I heard the name Kian somewhere. And I instantly instantly fell in love with the name it was like that name gripped my heart and I couldn't get away from it and I thought God if this is a boy I want to call him Kian I didn't even know how to spell Kian but anyway I eventually found the spelling K-A-N was the way that we that I spelt it and I read it up and it meant a mighty warrior and this name was birthed in my spirit and I kept praying for my Kian and I kept praying for this young man that God was going to give me. And, and, and this name literally became alive in my spirit as a seed. And I was absolutely unshakably aware of a person called Kian. Well, I had my second baby and it was a girl. It wasn't Kian. And I never had any more children after that. But I never lost this name. It was like, it was like I kept thinking, God, there's a son. I'm going to have a son. I know that there is, you've birthed this within me. And I can't get away from it. Anyway, many, many years later, I knew I was not going to have any more children. My oldest daughter got married and she fell pregnant a couple of years after getting married. And she came to me. The first thing I want you to know is when she got married, they felt God say to them that they had to create a new culture. And the way to do that was for him to give her his name and for her to give her her name and to create something that was their culture, their way taking something of where they've come from, but establishing something new in God. And so they officially double-barreled their surname and they made it Dillahunt James um, because that's what they felt God say to them. So then she falls pregnant and she comes to me one day and she said, Mom, are you ever going to have that son? And I said, no, because I'd spoken about him for all that time. I'd spoken about the name. I'd spoken about this, this, this boy that I knew was in my loins, so to speak. And um, I said, no, I'm not going to have it. So she said, mom, if we have a boy, can we use your name? 
And I said, oh, I'd be so honored if you did. It would be absolutely fabulous. And of course, my beautiful, massive grandson was born and his name is Kian Dillahunt James. Today he stands six foot nine, he's turning 19 and he is a hunk of a man, a mighty warrior. When he was about six, six months old, I was up one night and I couldn't sleep, which often happens, and I started researching the name. I thought, let me find out more about the name because the name was still in my heart and in my life, and now I had a Kian, which was my grandson. And I felt like Naomi, you know, when Ruth came and she said, here is your son. I felt, here is my son. God birthed him in my spirit. Here he is. There he is. And um, so I started looking up his name and I started researching the way that you do and looking at the history and what have you. And um, we discovered that our surname, Dillahunt, which people had told us was French, was actually Irish. And so I looked up where the name Dillahunt came from and I did this lovely research, took me hours, and I discovered that Dillahunt, in fact, was Irish and it came from a town called Tipperary in Ireland. That's where the Dillahunties, the Dillahunts, and there were a few different variations of the name and there's actually still a pub in Tipperary with the name Dillahunt on it. And I thought, isn't that amazing? A little bit more search and then I discovered this I found out that in the days of the Vikings that there was a king a ruler of Ireland that was a vicious man and was feared by the Vikings and he had three sons and he divided Ireland up into three areas he had every every one of his sons was given an area that they ruled and that they were in control of and one of his sons who was a mighty warrior, known as a mighty warrior, who was pretty much in his father's lineage. His name was Kian. And he was given authority over the territory of Tipperary, where the Dillahunts come from. I was absolutely blown away. Because God birthed this name in my spirit. I'm not a Dillahunt. I became a Dillahunt. The fact that they fused their surname meant they kept the surname. God wanted to create another mighty warrior in the lineage. And he gave the name which my daughter used for her son, Kian Dillahunt James, a mighty warrior. Friends, that meant that the God of all those years ago is still working. And what he was establishing in the physical, he was wanting to establish in the spiritual and that birthing of that name, which I could not get away from, has manifest for a time such as this through a young man that God said, that's what I'm going to do. And there's a pattern. And when we look at the Old Testament, we see patterns of the New Testament truth. I was so blown away. I realized it wasn't just me. I realized it was a far deeper thing. I realized what a prophetic statement it was. And I realized that God had a plan and that he birthed the name knowing that I was never going to bring forth that child, but that child was going to come through my lineage for a time such as this. He was created for this time, a mighty warrior that thinks differently and that will be feared by the enemy. Isn't that amazing? Second testimony, very quickly, because testimonies are so powerful. So in 1996, we were invited to go and take over a little broken church in a little town in the mountains of South Africa called Underberg. When we got there, I think it was called Underberg Christian Center or something. And when we got there, God showed us what we needed to repent for. That was really like Philistine sand that had been thrown into the well. And just to use it as a paraphrasing, because sin had come into the camp. There were things wrong. Things were not going right. And God was not pleased. 
So we came and we repented on behalf of the church, on behalf of the community. We asked God to forgive them. We broke bread. We just really petitioned heaven for the mercy of God to once again operate in that place. And as we were doing that, um, God told us to change the name. And so everybody got together and they started thinking, well, what shall we call the church and sort of praying? Because you see, at that point of time, I didn't have the revelation, ask God for his name. And so lots of lovely names came up, but God spoke into my spirit and he said, call it Highlands. Anyway, I put the name forward. It wasn't really received. And the day came that we were shutting the church and we were opening up the new church with a new name that is now a new creation, forgiven. All the old was gone. It was a new day. And... Um, that day, my husband got up and he announced and he said, we are going to be calling the church Highlands Church. And I was so excited. My spirit leaped because I realized that God had a plan and he had done it, even though not many at that point had agreed. Not even, they hadn't agreed, but yet that's what got favor and that's what took the thing. And we established Highlands Church. Well, sitting in the meeting that day was a man that was a farmer and he just moved onto a new farm. And I think a week later, a couple of days later, he comes and he says, look what I've discovered in my cow shed. And he, in his cow shed, he had discovered an old diary of a farmer, you know, among the dirt and the what have you. He found this diary of a farmer that had lived in the area a hundred years ago. He said, you like old things. I thought you'd be interested. I was so excited. So I started looking through this diary. <coughs> and as I'm turning through the pages, I thought, let's see what happened a hundred years ago. And I look back on the date that we planted the church, we opened the new church. And an entry in there, a hundred years before to the day said, today we went to Highlands Church. It's absolutely amazing, friends. And it goes on to describe that they, they, they went by ox wagon or by, by, by wagon and that they, they traveled to Highlands Church. Wasn't that amazing that God opened a portal in a place called Highlands where his spirit was moving a hundred years before that? Things have happened. Philistines came and threw sand. There was sin in the camp. There were things that had gone wrong. God said, repent for that because I want to reopen Abraham's well. And not only did he reopen Abraham's well, we had to give it the same name. Friends, only God can do that. Only God. That diary could have been found any time and it wouldn't have had the same effect. We could have gone in there and said, oh, look, it was called Highlands. Let's call it Highlands. And it wouldn't have had the same effect. But to find the diary at the time that we reestablished the church was a supernatural hand of God. And I want to tell you, God cares. He cares about his promises to people, to a type of people, to cities, to towns and to countries. And it's time that we got a revelation that God cares about the wells that were once opened, the boundary stones. Don't move them. Go reopen them. Go reestablish them. But go and open new wells as well. And then finally, I just want to end with this testimony. Thank you for listening. But I really pray that something has stirred in your hearts. The God that never forgets is the God that never remembers. As a little girl, I used to grow up, and my, my grandparents used to have which means um, church time around the table after supper. And as a little girl, it was extremely boring. We used to have to listen to my grandfather read this high Afrikaans. Sometimes I thought it was a Dutch Bible. 
and read this boring Bible. And I would sit there thinking, oh, I just want to go play. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. And he would read this boring Bible. And then he would say these boring prayers. And at the end of every single prayer, he would say this. And I'm going to say it in Afrikaans. He would say, in jyre, ek bid vir my nageslachte, laat hulle jou sal dien. Father, I pray for my, and my, my, my descendants that they will serve you passionately. And I heard it every time and I never thought about it, never thought about it, never thought about it. And you know, one day my, my parents were not um, really that radically saved. They, were, they went to church, they were religious, but they weren't born again. And God started moving in our hearts. And my brother, my oldest brother, and my, my older brother, he's younger than me, him and I got saved at a very similar age. We got radically saved. And our journey sort of wandered together that he ended up being radically saved, church leading, and really serving God with everything passionately, and still is today. And I got radically saved, served God passionately. I have two other siblings. All of them are serving God today. Out of the next generation, our children, we now have both my daughters serving God with everything within them. My brother's two daughters are both serving God with everything within them. My sister's daughter is serving God with everything within her. And so now there's a second and a third generation of kingdom. Of those, there are people in different nations that are serving God with everything within them. And I was sitting pondering once and I was saying, God, it's so strange because of, as I look back, we're the first generation born again Christians. What is that? And my God reminded me of the prayers of an old man that understood a God. He did not understand the Holy Spirit, but he understood a fear of God. He brought his family up in the way that he should go in the best of his ability. I also discovered that on the other side, I had a granny that was a captain in the Salvation Army, a great granny that was a captain in the Salvation Army. There were two generations of people that didn't seem to know God, serve God, or have anything to do with God. But in my generation, there was a revival that has risen up. And out of my cousins, there are so many of my cousins that are serving God on both sides, that are born again, that are spiritual, that have given their life to Jesus. That old man's prayers. Let my descendants serve you with everything within them. Is bearing fruit in my generation. Friends, how great is our God. We don't know who prayed for us, but God never, ever forgets. God never, ever forgets. Parents, pray for your children. Grandparents, pray for your grandchildren. Saints, pray for your town. Pray for your city. Go dig up the old wells. Go dig new wells. And let the fire of God begin. He is looking for glory carriers. God bless you, beautiful friends. And until we meet again, see you soon. Bye.